0: Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Kathy Kay, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, August 7th, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are on page 109, the last paragraph. Today's readers are Leslie F. on the 12 steps. Julie on the 12 traditions and reading the text are Elaine B, Katie F, and Janice M. The reference number for yesterday, August 6th, is 6726. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA who still suffer, to, to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition, states, each group has but one primary purpose: to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Leslie F. to read the 12 steps. Good morning. These are the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made the decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made the searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 6. We're entirely ready to, get, to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. 8. May the list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. May direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, We try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie F. And I'd like to ask Julie to read the 12 traditions.
1: Hi, this is Julie, recovered compulsive overeater in California. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, Pat.
0: Thank you, Julie. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature Then stop and share in what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature that we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirements for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. but the speakers should be muted. Today we will resume our study of the big book on page 109, the last paragraph that begins three. This husband has gone through. Um, and we will read through uh, three full paragraphs till it says um, when reasonably used. And I will ask Elaine B to get us started.
2: Thank you, Kathy. This is thanks for your service. This is Elaine B in Massachusetts. Recovered um, three. This husband has gone much further than the than husband number two. The once life number two, he became worse. His friends have slipped away. His home is a near wreck, and he cannot hold a position. Maybe the doctor has been called in and the weary round of sanitariums and hospitals has begun. He admits he cannot drink like other people, but does not see why. He clings to the notion that he will yet find a way to do so. He may not have come to the point where he desperately wants to stop, but cannot. His case presents additional questions, which we shall try to answer for you. You can be quite hopeful of a situation like this. Four, you may have a husband of whom you completely despair. He's been placed in one institution after another. He is violent or appears definitely insane when drunk. Sometimes he drinks on the way home from the hospital. Perhaps he has had delirium tremens. Doctors may shake their heads and advise you to have him committed. Maybe you have already been obliged to put him away. This picture may not be as dark as it looks. Many of our husbands were just as far gone, yet they got well. Let's now go back to husband number one. Oddly enough, he is often difficult to deal with. He enjoys drinking, it stirs his imagination. His friends feel closer over a highball. Perhaps you enjoy drinking with him yourself when he doesn't go too far. You've passed Happy evenings together, chatting and drinking before your fire. Perhaps you both like parties, which would be dull without liquor. We have enjoyed such evenings ourselves. We had a good time. We know all about liquor as a social lubricant. Some, but not all of us, think it has its advantages when reasonably used. So the Big Book is talking to the wives and describing the different stages that um, their alcoholic husbands may be in. And um, two messages are apparent. Um, <clears throat> they're drinking, and though they may want to stop, they're not able to. And the other is that they, uh, they're still clinging to an idea that someday they'll be able to. Either they,
3: <clears throat>
2: excuse me, on page 109, uh, type number one is positive he can handle his liquor, but it doesn't no harm, that drinking is necessary in his business. And um, husband number two is unable to stay on the water wagon even when he wants to. A little further down, it says he begins to think once more how he can drink moderately next time. Um, on, on husband number three, he's really starting to feel the consequences of, of his drinking, yet he clings to the notion that he will yet find a way to do so. And um, in the example number four, um, you know, he, he he's so far gone that he may, be needed, uh, may need commitment um, in order to keep him from the alcohol and the effects thereof. <clears throat> and so this is a progression of the disease. And yet the other message that's consistent all throughout is um, so beautifully put, even at the example of husband number four. Many of our husbands were just as far gone, yet they got well. What an encouragement for people like me that slip further and further into the cycle of insanity around food. You know, this is a family disease. My mother's nickname was Mother Hubbard because the cupboard was there. I had a sister that um, was hospitalized for anorexia and another one who spent years in bulimia. And uh, I always just said, and I'm just fat. But I walked into the rooms of this program and did the work that's laid out in this book. And um, have had a spiritual awakening that was sufficient to bring about recovery. So my story is the same as um, husband number four. Um, though I was very far gone, I got well. And with that, I passed.
0: Thank you, Elaine. Who would like to share on these paragraphs?
4: Katie Sally from Boston.
0: Okay. I heard Katie, G, and who else? Sally. Sally? Yeah. Judith. Kim. Kim. Judith. Okay. So I hear, I hear Katie, G, Sally, Kim, and then Judith. Okay. Go ahead, Katie.
4: Thank you, Kathy. Good morning, everyone. This is Katie G, recovered for today from Boston, Massachusetts. So grateful to be here, abstinence, so over by the grace of God. And um, ditto on what the previous speaker said that The um, lengths that I slipped away to, um, I was just saying yes, yes, identifying in Um, when I was eating and I couldn't hold a job um, and I didn't know why and I kept looking for ways that I could fix it, Um, you know, and I know my parents were devastated. They were confused. They had no idea why at age 24 I couldn't work. Um, and yet you can be quite hopeful, and I you know got into abstinence, and I couldn't again hold down a job and couldn't have functional relationships, and yet they got well and I love this idea that it talks about enjoying eating because you know when I was little when i when I first started eating, yeah. Food was a social lubricant. I um was this little kid, right, and people would come over to my house for birthday parties, and I was so scared, I was so scared socially that was like my default feeling, and I would eat flour and sugar, and I'm not kidding, even at like five and six, I was throwing up immediately, so it was this social lubricant. why? Because I sought oblivion, my thinking was so fearful and so based on figuring you out and what do you think and what do you want and what do you need and how do i control you i had no i had no escape and food was the escape it gave me oblivion you know and the problem is is that it cut me down to shards it got me to that place of not holding a job of not showing up in any of my relationships of being completely not useful in society and i'm here to say the happy, joyous, amazing, phenomenal news is that today, you know what, I, I am a functional member of this society. I have been given the privilege to live two lives at least in one lifetime and it is, I love this chapter because it is teaching me my impact on my family and what it is like to be in an addicted household, you know, and um. All I know is that the most important thing that I commit to every day is my relationship with God. And how do I get to God? I take step one. I'm clean. I keep the food down. I work my program. I work the steps. I live in the steps because God forbid if I get Stuck in the manifestations of self, and what are we talking about, guys, resentment, fear, and sex conduct, if I get stuck in my selfishness and going after what I want and need, eating is going to again look like a step up. It's going to again seem, my brain is going to lie to me and say, you know what, that's a social lubricant, you're going to be fine, just have a little bit. I cannot have a little bit. I will die. This dizzy will bring me down again, and I am so privileged that I get to show up and have a solution today, and I get to show up and be a functional member of this society. It is a privilege to be a member of this society and of Overeaters Anonymous, and with that, I do pass.
0: Thank you, Katie G. Um, Sally, please go ahead.
5: Thank you, Kathy. Good morning, a vision for you. This is Sally A. in South Jersey, a recovered compulsive overeater and I want to begin at the bottom of the nine and just want to share on the first paragraph but Just prior to it in that previous paragraph the few lines up It says these are the earmarks of a real alcoholic And so as we march through these different people one two three and four I'm reminded of the bottom of page 20 where it talks about the moderate drinker the the hard drinker and then the real alcoholic and here it seems to be actually Um, explaining to us the different levels of alcoholism. And the bottom of nine, this this previous paragraph that we read yesterday, was talking to us a little bit about the high-functioning alcoholic um, because it tells us perhaps he can still tend to business fairly well. He has by no means ruined everything. As we say among ourselves, he wants to want to stop. But now moving into this paragraph three, goes on to say, uh, this third type of drink or this third type of real alcoholic though so once like number two He became worse his friends have slipped away his home is a near wreck and he cannot hold a position So his relationships his friends his home and his workplace are a mess and that that was so true for me I'm reminded of Bill's story on page three where he talks about especially because of his friends have slipped away We see on page three for Bill's story in the middle of the page, I made a host of fair-weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends, that word remonstrances means the expressions of disapproval. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. There is such a clear example of how his friends, Bill's friends, slipped away on page three but my favorite part of this top paragraph is when he comes down to a few lines down he admits he cannot drink like other people and this reminds me of page 30 and 31 where over and over we're given four examples of the fact that we are not like other people he admits this fourth this third guy in the top paragraph on page 110 he admits he cannot drink like other people do we admit that we are not like other people when it comes to the food and page 30 and 31 over and over it says in the top paragraph he's made uh no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows therefore it is no surprise that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people And moving down, it goes on to say the delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. The bottom of the page on 30, it says, neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind, foodaholics of my kind and your kind maybe, like other men. And finally, in the middle of 31, heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other men people and here is again we're visiting that concept on page one hundred ten. He admits he cannot drink like other people. Do you know that you can't eat like other people? I know today I cannot eat like other people because I am not like other people. Thanks for letting
4: me share with that I pass.
0: Thank you, Sally A and Tim, please go ahead.
4: Thanks, Kathy. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G. and I'm a recovery compulsive overeater from South Jersey. I want to look at this from a different angle. I want to look at this from working with others. When we're going into a meeting and we meet a newcomer or someone who's returning and we're having a conversation, this is showing us the different stages of alcoholism. So it it lets us know if if someone is in category one, it's going to tell us how to approach that person. If they're in category two, how to approach that person. so I'm going to look at it from that angle. So if you're talking to a newcomer or someone who's returning and they're, they're number one, what is it telling us? They're a heavy drinker. They may not even be a compulsive overeater. It says he is positive he can handle his liquor, but he does him no harm. Some will moderate or stop altogether and some will not. So this is someone who maybe can come into OA and they can get a food plan and they can go to meetings and they can have a fellowship and maybe that's all they need. They're the heavy eater, the heavy drinker. Then there's, then there's uh, prospect number two. He is remorseful after serious drinking and tells you he wants to stop. He wants to want to stop. So there's more desperation. So there's a different approach with that person. Today we read about um, husband number three. So what about prospect number three? He admits he cannot drink at, like other people, but he does not see why. He clings to the notion he will yet find a way to do so. He may have come to the point where he desperately wants to stop, but he cannot. This is like the person who says, no, 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 I just need to find a new food plan or maybe I need to find a new sponsor or maybe I need to find a new meeting still clinging to the idea that they can control and enjoy their eating. Now what about prospect number four? He appears definitely insane when drunk. Sometimes he drinks on the way home from the hospital. You know, I think to myself how many times I would get to goal weight for about 15 minutes and I would immediately pick up and start binging again. There's absolutely no control left. In a sense, this picture may be as dark as it looks. So this is the progression. We're told in the Big Book that most people have to be pretty badly mangled before they're willing to do this program. So as we see where people are, it tells us how to approach them. And ironically, there's so many paradoxes in LA. It lets us know when we're approaching husband number one, oddly enough, he is often difficult to deal with. He enjoys his drinking. We're still getting something out of the food when we're number one. It's still the solution that works. Maybe not as well as it used to, which may be why we're coming to an LA meeting, but it still has an allure. That elusive effect is still working for them. So, ironically, we might read these and think, wow, I hope I get a sponsee like number one, because they're not as, as far down the path. But, ironically, Prospect number one, husband number one is the most difficult because the solution they've always had, which is the booze or the food, is still working for them. So I just wanted to look at this from a different angle. As we are working with others and we are meeting newcomers and meeting um, people returning, the big book is going to give us specific directions and specific warnings about how we can deal with people in these different stages of alcoholism or maybe they're not even a compulsive overeater.
0: And with that, I
6: pass. Thank you, Kim G. Judith, Judith? go ahead. Hi. Hi, this is Judith, Judith. recovered in Paris, France. Can you hear me?
0: I can, thank you. Thanks.
6: Uh, So when I used to read this paragraph, all these paragraphs, uh, all this this, uh, whole chapter, I used to get confused at first because I was married to a drug dealer addict many, 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 many years ago, over 30 years ago. And it's where I first came into 12 Steps and uh, it used to get confusing because I would read it and I'd realize, oh, this is about him. Uh, Until I found out, you know, I wasn't such a queen myself and I had a food addiction problem and, uh, you know, I still had a confusion. So some times when you have, you know, dual programs, you get confused. But there is uh, many ways to look at it and, and I really enjoyed what the other speakers have had to say about it from different angles and such. And um you know, when I look at it from my side of the street, you know, as as a compulsive eater an addict, um, and as others look at me, I, could, I sort of read it to the wives with questions. I sort of say to myself, you know, I kind of ask the question, you know, was I only a heavy drinker or was it that I was constant? You know, was it that I couldn't go out without having more food? Uh, was it that I used to eat before I went out? You know, or was I more... You know, like number two, I was getting out of control with the food. Nobody might see it, but I just couldn't keep on the wagon. You know, or sometimes was I totally out of control? My whole life fell apart because of the food. Or maybe it was just simply like I was losing friends. I didn't want to talk to anybody. So I I think we can ask ourselves these questions. And it really helped me a lot with my step eight and nine because it can help me say, you know, did I cast out my friends because I couldn't handle that and the food, you know, did I make people suffer in my business, you know, was I rude to people or was I, you know, I was self-employed and it was like, did I just chop them off or was I rude to them or was I not performing good service to them? So, you know, you can ask these things purely as questions, you know, was I always remorseful after I went on these bouts or was I going further and further into the, you know, the dreadfulness of this horrible disease? You know, and did I at any time realize that I couldn't drink like other people or did I try to prove to everybody around me, friends, family, husband, that I could, I could just keep doing it one more time, even though I was back up 50 pounds again, could I just try it one more time, you know, until you get to that next part where it's like you can't even live without it, it's just driving you insane. So in the fourth one, that paragraph where it says number four, I would always ask myself, was I violent to myself, was I insane? Actually, I went completely insane where I couldn't, could not breathe or w- walk without thinking i got to go back to the supermarket. And that was like a violent act because I would shove that shit down my throat. I didn't even want it. I didn't like it. I couldn't eat it anymore, but I would just keep shoving it in because my insane brain said I cannot go on without it. So it's like a complete delirium, complete delusion, unbelievable. So I think these, these things can really help us. What I love about this is it does end on saying, I mean, not end, but it certainly says, yet they got well, which, you know, to the newcomer, hang in there, but you've got to do the work, right? You've got to do the work, and if you've got to ask a lot of questions and get yourself a guide, somebody who can help you ask the questions that make so much sense from page one, from the foreword, from page one, all the way through here, because you can get well. It can disappear. It has disappeared for me. I just cannot. Imagine the sugar, the flour, the wheat, the things that drive me insane in nuts from the allergy of the body and the insanity, the obsession of the mind. It can be lifted, really lifted. So keep coming in and and really looking at these things, and we'll ask you the questions, but you can also start by asking yourself those questions, and it will make you well, well again. And that I pass.
0: Thank you, Judith. Um, this is Kathy. I'd like to take a turn. Um, I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And as I listened to everybody share, I realized that for many years um, I admitted I was uh, like husband number one, um, but I could not see that over the years my disease did progress and I became more like number two, and then number three, and even number four. So I carried a lot of denial around with me. And um, today I realized that uh, I had to at least consider the possibility that I could identify in some way um, with all four of these stages of our disease. And it was only then that I became really serious about doing the work of the 12 steps. Um, Denial is uh, a coping mechanism that I used for many years to uh, convince myself that things weren't so bad and that I wasn't so sick. And actually the freedom and the recovery came when I uh, shed my denial and really saw that uh, I was in a terrible cycle, a terrible illness, and that there was a way to recover. And with that, I pass. Would anyone else like to share? Larry? Go Sheila? Oh, okay. Let me see. Larry?
7: Rakesha? Leia
0: Leah. Uh Leia. And Anna. I heard someone else. Sheila. Sheila. Okay, Sheila, I actually heard you before Rakessa. So let's go Larry, Sheila, Rakessa, and then Leia. Go ahead, Larry.
3: Good Morning, Kathy. Thanks for your service. Um Larry, recovered compulsive reader from Chicago. I yeah, heard a lot of a lot of good things. Um, you know, we're we're reading about, you know, um perhaps the progression of this disease and we're reading about um different aspects of of the husband or the spouse here. You know, um, boy, for, you know, you may have been a husband or you may have a husband of whom you completely despair. He's been placed in one institution after another. He's violent or appears definitely insane when drunk. The thing is, with all these different, you know, progressions and so forth, I spent a lot of time when I think back and I I think this is uh, damaging was for me maybe it maybe it was for other people there might be someone on the line that that's sitting in despair right now um to identify out it's such a powerful thing you know as was mentioned you know admitting that that we're real alcoholics and and like kim said maybe you know maybe you're not you know but there is one way it says we do not on page 31 we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic Oh, but good! You can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest barroom, you know, the nearest bakery. Try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you're honest with yourself about it. Um, and it may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get full knowledge of your condition. See, um, you know, for me, I tried to identify out. I didn't get here morbidly obese. I had good jobs, well-educated on paper, you know. Um, I didn't throw up. I didn't purge. See, I focused in on all the things that I didn't do. And when I heard other people sharing the insanity of their lives, oh, good, I'm not like those poor saps. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I don't belong. The bottom line was, though, for me, a couple of things. One, I couldn't stay stopped. And I saw the progression of this disease. I learned about the progression. Um, I learned about the allergy of the body, that I have an adverse reaction when I take in my substance. And I also learned about the far more uh, uh, troubling aspect of this disease, which is the obsession of the mind, which kept me coming back again over and over and over. What's the matter with me? Why can't I, I stay stopped? I see other people eating with impunity, without consequence, and yet I can't. And I see that uh, my my life is is not working; it's unmanageable, you know. But because of you know, perhaps uh, for whatever reason, I wasn't morbidly obese. Those people, thats what this is for: overeaters anonymous. It's for the the, the morbidly obese. Oh, or it's for the uh, the anorexics or, or what have you. You know I had to identify in I had to concede to my innermost self that I was powerless. That's where we start in step one, and these stages um, help us and help you know you know to the to the to the spouse, to the wives you know to understand perhaps the alcoholic and understand some of the progression. but until I got that that I was truly powerless, I would never take the actions necessary to have a complete spiritual transformation. And had I not done that, taking the action um, and, and doing the work, doing the deal, doing the drill, then I wouldn't have, I, I couldn't be the person I am today and have the compassion in, the, uh, in my heart and the love in my heart and be fully connected where God flowed in, you know, flooded in, you know, so that, that that's what I take from this and with that I'll pass.
0: Thank you, Larry. Um, Sheila, please go ahead.
3: Hi,
8: this is Sheila. Can you hear me?
0: I can. Thank you.
8: Good morning. Thank you for your service. Sheila H. from New York. we covering a day at a time. Boy, I um, needed to really identify with this, but this was the Achilles for me from my part of the program. I'm so much like the drinker number one Um pick up stuff, put stuff down, yo-yo diet for years. And to me, it was a coping mechanism to deal with all the real addicts in my life at that time. You know, I watched family members progress from number one to four and to death. two family members of ours that we lost due to this disease progressing to the point that they were no longer with us. And so I watched this disease progress. It starts off very slow. And it could take a long time, but eventually it progressed to the point that you would lose your life or your mind. And for me, looking at this differently today, because now I see myself also as the addict, and I really, really, really deny, 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 deny. Um, Yo-yo dieting works very well for me. And I always say, if it still worked, I probably would not be in the rooms today if it still worked, um, but what I've been educated since I've come into the room, and for my own life, is just that this disease will progress. And I would say to myself, well, maybe today you can put this down and walk away, but you know that you have this disease, and the day will come when you won't be able to put it down. And even after the worst binge in my life, I was still having a little bit of denial. Maybe I should have did this, maybe I should have did that. And only when I surrender to a power greater than myself and accept, yes, you do have this disease, it's where it is today. But if you don't do the work, it will progress, and you know the results. Um, and with that, I'll pass. Thanks for letting me share, and thank you for your service.
0: Thank you, Sheila H. Uh, Rakesh. Please go ahead.
9: Did you say
4: my name, Rakesh?
0: Yes, I did. Oh,
9: sorry. Sorry, I was unmuting. Um, Anyway, I would like to speak about this one line. It makes me shiver. Um, It was on the bottom paragraph. Perhaps you enjoy drinking with him yourself when he doesn't go too far. Too far. I could never eat without going too far. There's no such thing in my vocabulary. People don't understand. My family doesn't understand that one bite is too far. One extra bite is too far. We say often in program, one bite is too much and a thousand is not enough. One extra bite of anything that's not weighed or measured and is not on my food plan or is not on my food plan is going too far. I always, always took the Uh, food too far. I could not stop. You know, it was nice being able to go to a restaurant with my kids or my husband and sit down and have a nice meal, you know, slowly eat like a lady. But I could never do that. I could never, ever do that. I could never sit down and eat slowly like a lady casually, you know, enjoying your food and then talking and chatting. No. If I was at a restaurant, if I was anywhere where there was food that you could take like at a party with a buffet or something, all I was doing was stuffing my face. And nobody, I didn't have anything to say to anybody. I, I didn't care about anybody. I cared about the food. That was the only thing in in my head. And my husband gets it. My kids get it. They never ever ever try to tell me to have something extra ever They know that not I cannot eat one unweighed bite of food and with my with my um my mom, my sisters, or the rest of my family when I see them occasionally when we're at an, a a holiday event or something, you know I'm a hundred pounds now, lighter than I was. They forget that I was used to be a hundred pounds more. I'm in a very slender body now, and they'll tell me, wow, you look so good, you know, you can have a little bit now. You can have a little bit, you know, you're not like you used to be. Oh, yes, I am. I am exactly like I used to be, it's not worse. The longer I stay abstinent, I know that disease is just waiting to pop up with me. I cannot ever eat anything without going too far if it's not weighed in abstinent food. So... No, I, um really does make me shiver because people do want to eat with me as long as I don't go too far but there's no such thing like I said in my vocabulary not going too
8: far so thank you for letting me share it I pass
0: thank you Rekha, and Leah please go ahead
8: thank you so much Kathy
10: we're obviously uh, reading to the wives. This is a 12-step a call by the wives of alcoholics on wives of alcoholics, and obviously they are detailing a bit here the progression of the illness. Um, you know, at the top of 110 where it says, you know, his friends have slipped away, his home is a near wreck, and he cannot hold a position. You know, this disease is progressive. You know, for me, both compulsive overeating and recovery have been, progressive conditions, compulsively overeating, progressively downward, it took me. And recovery has been, thank God, progressively upward. But, um, you know, I relate right in, you know, to where these wives are describing the illness and its progression. I, you know, my life was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. And these women, these wives, you know, are offering a message of depth and weight. They have seen this deterioration in their loved ones. Uh, They have witnessed uh, the alcoholics getting to a point where there's no sense of family, where there's no sense of community, where the madness is so severe. Um, And I relate into that deterioration. You know, I knew I was a compulsive overeater. I had no idea what I was up against. I didn't understand the depth to which this disease would take me, and I certainly didn't see the writing on the wall. And my own understanding and awareness of the disease never stopped me from compulsive overeating. So even as these alcoholics, it says here, he may have come to the point where he desperately wants to stop but cannot. This is the point of no return. I remember that place. You know, lack of power was my dilemma. Um, But I just wanted to hone in here on that statement. (laughs) As bad as this all looks, that statement, this picture may not be as dark as it looks. You know, these women are carrying a message of depth and weight too. They're carrying a message of experience. This is their uh, collective voice, their collective wisdom and experience related to alcoholism. And as dark as this page looks, and it looks pretty bleak. And some of us compulsive overeaters have been in that madness and mayhem. I certainly have been where the soul was getting sucked out of me. I had stopped thousands of times. How do you not start again? How do you not start again? But the message of hope here is relayed, you know, in the doctor's opinion also that after all this bleakness and darkness and despair and hopelessness, you know, in the doctor's opinion, it says on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. And that is the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, and that's the message from hopelessness to hope that this book offers. Whether it's from from the alcoholic to the alcoholic, or from the wife of the alcoholic to the wife of an the alcoholic, there is a way out. And with that, I pass. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Leah. Uh, let's move on to the next page at the top of page 111, and I'll ask Katie F to read the four full paragraphs on this page, ending with helpful rather than critical.
11: Good morning, this is Katie
0: F., a recovered
11: compulsive overeater in Virginia. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry. Even if your husband becomes unbearable and you have to leave him temporarily, you should, if you can, go without rancor. Patience and good temper are most necessary. Our next thought is that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. If he gets the idea that you are a nag or a killjoy, your chance of accomplishing anything useful may be zero. He will use that as an excuse to drink more. He will tell you he is misunderstood. This may lead to lonely evenings for you. He may seek someone else to console him, not always another man. Be determined that your husband's drinking is not going to spoil your relations with your children or your friends. They need your companionship and your help. It is possible to have a full and useful life though your husband continues to drink. We know women who are unafraid, even happy under these conditions. Do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so no matter how hard you try. We know these suggestions are sometimes difficult to follow but you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. Your husband may come to appreciate your reasonableness and patience. This may lay the groundwork for a friendly talk about his alcoholic problem. Try to have him bring up the subject himself. Be sure you are not critical during such a discussion. Attempt instead to put yourself in his place. Let him see that you want to be helpful rather than critical. Well, this is just packed with spiritual principles that uh, they're trying to teach to the wives so that they get out of the position of trying to save them. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, my family could not help me. Uh, They, you know, offered suggestions and, you know, I was, you know, one for a while. Uh, when I was about nine years old, and then you know I progressed and progressed and progressed, so it didn't matter what my um you know I wasn't married when I got into recovery, but um you know these are just very good uh suggestions for how to um you know to to give the wife or give the the other family members, whoever they are permission to not try to solve the problem for you. And, you know, I didn't – my relationships with my family had gotten so bad that I didn't even tell them I was recovering for several months because I just – you know, I didn't think they'd believe me. I didn't think they would like what I was doing. I didn't think that they would understand and now, as I'm the recovered person, I have to take these same principles and apply that to them, that I can't, um, I can't try to change someone else either. I can be available. I can uh, share my experience, strength, and hope when someone is looking for it. But I don't, um, you know, just attack every person I see that seems to be out of control in my estimation and try to hammer them on the head with these spiritual principles. It just doesn't work. And um, it's asked, this is a very tall order, though, but it's also very freeing to say, uh, be determined that your husband's drinking is not going to spoil your relations with your children or your friends. Now, that you can, you know, your loved ones, um, when, the, when one person is still in disease, the other people can still have a life. And um, I'm just grateful that that we don't have to. Um, we don't have to save the world. We have to save people who are ready for this recovery. And I'll
0: pass. Thank you, KDF. Who would like to share on these paragraphs? Lauren, yeah. Yeah. Sue G. Okay, I heard Lauren S. and Sue G. And who else? Hi. Anita J. Okay, Anita J. And I heard someone else. Uh, Raquel in New York. Raquel in New York. Okay. And and Sarah. Okay. So we'll go Lauren S. Sue G. Anita J. Raquel and Sarah. Okay, go ahead, Lauren S.
12: All right. Lauren S., as in Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm so blessed that this book is about bringing us closer to a more loving and tolerant way of life for everybody. And it is inclusive, never exclusive, for those who may have an addiction problem and those who may not. So I have had the feeling from my family that maybe OA is more of a Lauren thing. This is for you. But that's not the case. This fellowship is now giving instruction to the wives, and family members who might have no problem at all with any addictive substances here the last paragraph we read, you know this may lay the groundwork for a friendly talk about his alcoholic problem. That's like reminding me of chapter chapter nine chapter seven when They want future step guides to bring in and talk to the family with the alcoholic. This is instruction for, for sponsoring. And, again, to wrap this up, patience and good temper are most necessary. You want to be helpful rather than critical. Those are constant spiritual ways of living that's echoed in love and tolerance is our code when you're making amends, be calm, frank, and open. When they give us that resentment prayer, you know, I can't remember if it's in Chapter 4 or the end of the book, God, please show them the same patience, pity and tolerance, that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. These principles are ways of living on this planet, regardless if you may have a drinking problem or eating problem or not. This is how we can be more fellowship with our species. So I'm so grateful the writers of this book realize this is way more about living in harmony with other people, whether you have an addiction or not. And these lives might not have an addiction. So with that, I will pass.
0: Thank you, Laureness. Sue G., please go ahead.
13: Hi, it's Sue G. from Southeastern Pennsylvania, a grateful, recovered member of this fellowship and a member of an Anon fellowship, which shall remain nameless so that I am not trying to promote it. Um, this, these couple of pages, they're amazing, and they, they make me have some spiritual reflection, so I hope I can stay focused with this one because it's kind of overwhelming. It's really wonderful. Um, this is our journey and there, there's a journey in our illness, which becomes the journey to being part of all of humanity. And I, I really, I love my two fellowships. I just spoke on step eight in the other fellowship. And it just always underscores, whenever I'm a speaker there, how the two journeys are really the same thing. So in in our journey, it's we have we start out in a in a spiritually pretty bereft place there isn't any illness i don't have it or i'm all alone and i'm all alone with my food i'm isolated then we we join a fellowship we say i have it but i'm not as bad as someone else and we we go on our comparison journey and we're like little kids trying to find our way then um I have the same disease as the others in our fellowship and I'm abstinent and I'm sometimes willing to work the program and, and hopefully willing enough. So I do the steps four through nine and get up to 10, 11, and 12 where I can really be recovered. Um, and eventually, most of us who are willing enough of the time, not perfectly willing but willing enough, we make that journey. And then where where do I get? when I make that journey. Well, when I'm in that, I'm willing some of the time, I, enough of the time to work the program. I'm, I'm in this fellowship, and I need my fellowship to remain abstinent when there are holes in my journey. I need to go to a meeting and have tradition to apply. There's God in the, in the group conscience. And where I get when the sunlight of the spirit is truly open to me is I'm no different than anybody else. I have the same problem as all human beings, and that problem is I have to find what is holy within me, which is not me, but it's within me, it's the God within, and I have to be able, as a grown-up in this society, I have to be able to share it without. I have to be able to share it with others, and and that, to me is the quest I've been on for a long time in my other fellowship, for a couple of years in this fellowship. And the quest is marvelous. I mean, it just opens all these possibilities. And I start to see, oh, my disease of compulsive overeating is really not different from anybody else's. If, if some so-called normal person goes to TGI Fridays and eats the right combination of food, guess what they have? They can't stop and they don't know how to stop from starting. It's the same thing. And this this is a disease that's present in our whole society. And if we want to take care of ourselves, we need to really be aware of that. So so there's a, a pressing quest that, that we're on. And it's really very wonderful because along with realizing these things that we have within us that we can share we're never alone anymore there we are with with the human family it's not uh, it's not after all just about my family of origin and all oh, these things were wrong or gee here's the fellowship and you're the right kind of addict and and you're the wrong kind of addict it's not like that we're we're all human and vulnerable and we all need a quest and and the gift of this program is now I'm an adult, and when that child within starts screaming, I say, calm down, dear, and if you don't calm down, I'm going
0: to pick you up and put you in the car because we're going on a journey. So
13: thanks for letting me
0: share. Thank you, Suji. Um, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. I'm sorry to Raquel and Sarah. Um, hopefully you can share after the first hour. Uh, Anita, you'll be our last share today. Thank you. Anita J., please
11: unmute. Thank you. I thought
4: I was. This is Anita J. from Massachusetts. Um, You know, now that I am recovered, I see this chapter with new eyes. Because since I've joined the human race, I've let everybody else join it. Um, I was sure when I'd read this chapter, which I did read, thinking of other people, never myself, that uh, I had a husband that would be like behind door number one there, and a mother behind door number four, but I didn't see me. And I just can only say, as we're wrapping up, I am so grateful to see them all as loving human beings, no matter what their faults, just like me. What a relief to live like this. And I pray that I will continue, with God's help, to live out of this new vision, this vision for me and you. Thank you, and I pass.
0: Thank you, Anita. Thank you, everyone, uh, who has shared. Uh, We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Uh, Janice Sam, could you please read a vision for you? Our book is meant to be suggestive only.
7: Why, certainly, Kathy. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you,